This is Poetry, What Is It Good For? A program about poetry and poets interacting. Today, we're here to remember, explore, try to gain meaning from the attacks against the U.S. by Saudi Arabian terrorists who transformed passenger airplanes into bullets two decades ago. I'm Alan Winson with my podcast co-host Rebecca McCain, readers of poetry, and Chris Brandt, a writer of poetry. Today, we are privileged to have in the Zoomalated house two well-known poets who are going to enter into a conversation via their poetry and others' poetry about what will be remembered, at least for a while, as 9-11. J. Chester Johnson is a poet, playwright, essayist, translator, speaker, and teacher. He visited Bar Crawl Radio a couple of months ago to talk about his book, Damaged Heritage, on the history and his family's connection with the 1919 Elaine, Arkansas Massacre, one of many human crimes against humanity in which U.S. white citizens and military killed over 100 U.S. black citizens. In the fall of 2001, Chester was serving on the governing board of Trinity Church administering to St. Paul's Chapel, which stood directly across from where the Twin Towers fell. The chapel remained unscathed and became a gathering place for the workers in the pit. During the eight-month cleanup, the chapel was open to workers who slept in the pews and ate warm meals. Soon afterwards, Chester wrote a poem for St. Paul's Chapel which has become its memento card, read by millions of visitors. Cornelius Eady is a, a New York poet, New York born and bred poet, grew up in Rochester, New York, and came to New York City sometime in the 1970s and has been one of New York City's leading poets since then. He has published, uh, I'm not sure, quite sure how many books, but it's eight or nine books of poetry. He is also a musician, and with his band, uh, his trio, sings many of his poems. That's Cornelius Eady. Chris, hi, Chris. How are you doing? Very good. Thank you, Cornelius. Yeah, yeah it's a long time. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. Chester, hi. Good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you so much for, for joining us both. Chester and Cornelius, I mean, we're, we're very excited about uh, speaking with you today about this uh, very important topic of 9-11 on the 20th anniversary. Um, how do you two know each other? Cornelius and I had met through, you know, various poetry readings and that sort of thing for a while. But then, actually, it was through 9-11 that we, um, that, that we met, became good friends and that sort of thing. Bach at one program at St. Paul's Chapel, and I was curating that halfway through the Bach programs or three quarters or whether there would be a cantata or, or whatever, we would have poets read. And I asked Cornelius if he would come in and, um, and read as he would see fit, because the interesting thing was that and I'm, I'm probably getting ahead of myself in terms of don't, don't bum out the musicians, but I wouldn't, <laughs> I, I'll just tell the story. 
the musicians, because they had been at, they were at St. Paul's Chapel, which was right across the street from the North Tower site. And also early on, a lot of the poems dealt with 9-11. They were, they had made a request that I asked the poets not to read anything related to 9-11 and try to be a little bit more uplifting about it. And, um, and so, um, and Cornelius read, I think, did you, I think you read Communion that. I think I, I, I probably read Communion. I don't yeah. remember exactly what I read, but that's probably the one I did read. And, um, you know, but I did also try to keep it upbeat. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. But the term, the line, you know, don't bum out the musicians really stuck in my, uh, in my head. And I carried it with me uh, and eventually just wrote a poem uh, about that. And we're yes, going to be I, ending the program right. with Chester's uh, poem uh, on St. Paul's Chapel, Yes. And then Cornelius's poem, Don't Bum Out the Musicians. And now right. I know where, where I got that name. It makes so much yeah. more but, sense but, now. But when I read it, when I read it, because it's important to me, I apologize, but it is because I was very moved. Cornelius dedicated the poem to me. Yes. And mm. so when I when I read it, I'm going to say for J. Chester Johnson at the very end. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a reason, if you're listening, dear listeners, why you have to stay to the end of this podcast. Right. <laughs> That's to, right. To hear that. Okay. So we began with we began with the end. Right. So, uh, Chris, how do you know uh, Cornelius? I know Cornelius through Medicine Show. Right. Amazing the theater show. company that yes. uh, that I worked with, Cornelius came and read. We had a, a series of um, poets and writers readings, which we called word slash play. So wordplay. And Cornelius was one of our star readers on that. This was back in... This has to have been 40 years ago. At least, Chris. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> at least, you know. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and the medicine show is now defunct, right? Yeah, the pandemic, oh. the pandemic uh, put the final status knife in, you know. Sad to but, hear it. But we made it to 50 years, which is not bad. for. No, doesn't suck. <laughs> <laughs> Cornelius and Chester, where were you two on the day that uh, our country was attacked uh, 20 years ago. Do you remember that day? I'm sure you do. Oh, absolutely. I remember I was in our apartment um, in the West Village, which is about a mile or so away from Ground Zero. And it was uh, just, you know, at the, I'm sure everyone re recalls that uh, initially no one knew, knew what was going on. Uh, in fact, they thought maybe it was just a small plane that had crashed into the accidentally uh, crashed into the World Trade Center as if maybe the pilot had a heart attack or something, and, you know. Yeah. Um, and so we were looking, you know, we we're on, like everyone else, we had turned on the TV and was watching, the, watching it. Uh, and I turned my head away when the second one hit. My wife, my wife Sarah, uh, responded to, oh, my God, you know, and she actually saw the second, uh, uh, you know, jet hit the other tower. Um, so, but that was my that was my memory of it. My wife at that time was working for Time Magazine for Kids, and um, for a moment, it actually looked like everyone was going to go in. It was going to be all hands on deck, and everyone was going to go to the Time Building, uh, Time uh, Life Building, 
uh, you know, to to uh, to to work on the on these uh, on these uh, on the story on unfolding story, uh, but soon became very clear that that uh, the city was going to be in lockdown, and of course, it'd just be you know fruitful to to actually uh, and, and dangerous <laughs> to actually go out. But that's the way I remember it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, my wife and I were working working together as we did for many years consulting with state and local governments on financing and debt management issues. And our offices were downtown, and we were very close to the South Tower. The first, I was on actually on the phone when the first tower hit, and I was with, I was on the phone with a group of people who were right across the, um, the street from the North Tower. And, um, at first, as Cornelius indicated, everyone thought it was a small plane that crashed into North Tower. Then a few minutes, South Tower was hit. And the South Tower, we were we were very close South Tower. No one would let us out of the they wouldn't let us out of the building because the police department felt that if you were downtown, there was fear that other buildings would be hit. So we were effectively stopped from from uh, leaving our office within a matter of an hour or so the south tower came down and we had plate glass window that faced the south tower if you recall now the north tower was hit first but the south tower came down first and this large plume um, came toward us and we really thought because we were looking at the plate glass window that was it. I mean, we were on the 16th floor and right at the level sort of where the the plume came. And um, it enveloped the building. And it was like, as you know, it was a beautiful day, Tuesday, September 11th. So, um, but it it was a beautiful day. And then all of a sudden the building, the whole day was wrapped by this, by this plume. And uh, it stayed that way for about um, three and a half hours. Oh. Finally, uh, we were allowed to to leave the building, um, and we put we had brought masks in. My wife had brought in masks for us to have a cleanup day of the office, and we had postponed the cleanup day. So we had masks to wear. We walked down the 16 steps, I mean, step 16 floors, out into Wall Street. And, um, you know, it was like eight inches deep of debris and pulverized cement and that sort of thing. And um, obviously, probably carnage, human carnage at some point. And... Um, we walked, um, we started to walk home. We walked down Wall Street to Water Street and then went through Chinatown and then 14th Street. And we stopped at spot um, 14th Street and uh, just to uh, rest for a little bit. Then we got out and I saw a cab, mm. off-duty cab, and I asked them what they would charge me if they would drive, take us close to home. And we live on the Upper East Side, and the taxi driver said, just get in. Don't oh. worry about that. And he drove us up to just about 83rd Street and uh, let us out. 
and let us out. And we went to our apartment as soon as, very soon after we arrived in our apartment, we saw, we heard, and there were police sirens in front of a caravan of semi red, you know, very large trucks of blood supply and the Red Cross was bringing to all the hospitals. It was so odd looking back on it. Must have been, you know, five or six of these transport trucks with blood supply being brought into the city to go to the hospital. And very little of that was ever, you know, it was everyone passed in the, the pit in the pile. And um, we couldn't get back to our offices for the better part of 10 days. Um, and during that time, um, I was driving my wife, Frida, crazy. Frida reacted a little bit differently and was very, wanted to be quiet about it. And finally she said, you know, Chester, you're driving me crazy. You've got to go do something. So I, at that point, I knew that I had, I was involved with Trinity Wall Street, and um, I know that they had opened up this chapel to be the relief center for the recovery workers. And it it was the relief center for the recovery workers up until for the eight to nine months of cleanup. And so I started volunteering at St. Paul's Chapel, and out of that came the point. Yeah. What did it sound like when that built? You were, I didn't realize you were right there. Me either. Oh. Uh, you, you described the visual aspect of it, the darkness, the cloud coming at you. What was the sound that came at you? Well, it's interesting how your senses take over. The sound was not as significant as the tremors. You know, you didn't, if your building's moving, <laughs> you tend to focus on that and you don't listen and you don't listen carefully. Now, the North Tower, we only felt a little of the jarring of that because we were much further south. But when the, when the South Tower was hit, it really did, it, it had a significant impact on us because we were only, you know, maybe 100, 150 yards away from it. Wow. And, you know, with, with that massive structure coming down, it, well, all the buildings in that part of the city shook. And um, so that was the impression, as opposed, I literally can't remember the sound. Well, I'm sorry. That's you right. can, But you can imagine your your focus is on, <laughs> is the, is that, will our building come down? You know? Yeah, yeah. Cornelius, um, can you tell us how you spent that time directly after the attack? How did you react to it? Well, uh, we were, like I said, we were in our apartment and we were watching uh, the, uh, you know, the events uh, from about a mile and a half away. So with a different orientation. Yeah. Um, but, but I do remember things like um, the, uh, one of the hospitals that that, that that blood was going to was St. Vincent's, which is in the neighborhood. Um, and there is that eerie shot of, you know, the television cameras just on, at the, at the uh, ambulance bay uh, at St. Vincent's and nothing happening. Uh, you know, uh, doctors and, you know, attendants, you know, waiting for ambulances that are never going to come. And, and it kind of sank in to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. 
I remember yeah, we, that we, feeling. Yeah. We had the hospital ships out in the in the on the river, and they were empty. No one, there was no one yeah. there to put into the hospital ships. Our daughter was a lifeguard, and she ran to volunteer with the you know the the health workers yeah. along the river, and she just sat and sat and sat and. Yeah, well, I mean, we all wanted to give blood, but there was no one to give blood oh, to. Oh, I did. I gave blood. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it was. That uh, was the hard, that was a hard part of that whole yeah. aftermath. Cornelius, you talk about um, writing about the raw experience of life, uh, about these big events that happen, about writing about them. And you've advised your students, you don't need to wait. Uh, you, you can go ahead and you can write about about what what what's happening to you you don't have to process it just get the moment i mean that's what i got from 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 what you wrote when did you start writing about this event of 20 years ago well to tell you the truth um, i didn't write about it for maybe almost a year um and i was i was teaching at city college at the time and um and i think there was some event at city college and i was approached by somebody in the administration um, because I was the writer in residence there at the moment, uh, that I should, that, you know, the writer in residence should do something, <laughs> to, yeah. should write something about <laughs> and you know, and I was really reluctant to do it because, because you know, and this is probably why I've gotten to the point where I, I tell my students, you know, just don't wait, jump in, right? Um, because because you know, I was, you know, I, I, you know, it's too big. How can you talk about this? How can you do this? And also personally, for the first time in my life, I actually write this in, in the in the poem uh, communion. It actually felt to be um, um, irresponsible to be writing verse, you know, uh, with all this death around. I guess it's the equivalent of, of, of that saying, you know, um, how can you write, after you see the Holocaust, how can you write poems anymore, right? Uh, it wasn't that, I mean, it wasn't exactly that, but, 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 but it was that feeling that there was something inappropriate about, about writing um, verse. Maybe it was survivor's guilt, you know, but... Um, but uh, but that but that first poem that I actually wrote, Griefberg, was really I think the first thing I actually wrote, um, uh, and was and was an occasional poem. Um, but it was the idea of, of just trying to figure out a way of talking about it, and I had to talk about it maybe just to, just just to, just to just to talk about, you know, um, the, the what I remember seeing um, soon after. Um, you know, when you'd go, we'd walk down to the West Side Highway and, and, you, and you'd see, you know, the, the workers and you see the, the ambulances and the fire trucks going down to the pile. And, um, and also the, the, the sense of that uh, emptiness, like the, the number, you know, from like right, what we saw at, at St. Vincent's, right? Also being multiplied by, by people, you know, just, just walking around like Chester, you probably had that look and that walk when you were walking around, right? This, 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 this moment, this, this feeling with devastation is all around you and you're walking through it. You know, the dust and the powder and the, you know, just the incredible transition, you know, so quickly. Um, and so Griefbird was basically trying to, to, uh, to illustrate that, that, that feeling. Okay. One of the, one of the things that, that moved me most uh, during this whole the whole couple of weeks on that day and after that day was the the walls full of eight yes. and a half by eleven posters. Have you seen this person? Have you? In fact, I only I only knew one person who was in the towers and he perished. Um, but it, the all the, the the sheer weight of the numbers of that 
was so powerful. Um, and it, it, I guess my question to you is why is, because I believe it is, why is poetry such an, uh, an appropriate media, medium to, to tackle something like this with? Chester? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, I, well, I'll, I'll make a comment about that. Well, first of all, it takes a while, I think, for anyone to make their, after experiencing what we collectively as a city experienced, I think it takes a while before you, I, I, I realized, Cornelius, that you wrote grief bird quickly and or at least early on and all that but speaking personally i really needed to digest that experience in in a considerable way before i i started writing and um before i even attempted like saint paul's chapel to um to be written i think people seek it for probably for the same reason that poets write it after that period. And that is to make sense out of the senseless acts. I mean, how do you, you know, there's, that's the voice of, of a poet, I think, is to be able to express not just the feeling, but sort of the, the subtlety of, expression, the subtlety of experience that that defines the moment as best we can remember it and and the impact of that. And in many ways I think that the um, that the public generally look to poets and songwriters and um, and the performers in particular, um, performers in the sense of, of, of wordsmithing, to, to um, express the, the inexplicable and do it in a way that, that captures the moment, but also captures the elucidation of the, of, of, of the experience. I mean, there are a lot of poems that people were sending around to each other that had an expression of that. Maybe they didn't specifically fit the 9-11 experience, but at the same time, they captured the, the emotion involved. Uh, September the 1st, 1939, the Auden poem mm. had nothing to do with 9-11. It had to do with Germany crossing into Poland and starting World War II, but it had that similar cata catastrophic impact. And then I think that's what people were looking for. And, uh, but speaking as a poet, it just took me a long time. I, I remember, you know, it was from September until February that I even started writing St. Paul's Chapel. And it was in the middle of being, the, being a volunteer at St. Paul's Chapel. That, and, and I had to go through that experience. I'm sorry, I'm being glithering. No, you're not. No, no, Absolutely. No, you stop. No, <laughs> no. no, please. You know, no, Chester. No, it's really, it's really, I mean, that, that is, that is really the essence of it, I think. And you reminded me that the poem that I wrote, the second poem that I wrote was called Communion. And that's exactly what I think, uh, you know, why we do this. 
it, it was it wasn't the official record, right? It, right. it, it wasn't journalism, and it wasn't uh, you know, and, and it wasn't you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, some sort of some sort of way of, of and it wasn't political in the sense that it wasn't trying to figure out what all it was. It was just what happened, right? Right. And because we all had passed through an historical moment, right? You know, an entire city, a nation too. But I mean, I'm talking about the nation. You talk about the nation, of right. course. But 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 it happened in New York. It happened in Manhattan. And and for and for you know the people who actually lived on the on the island, whether you were you know living close to Ground Zero or not, you know, it was just simply that you just suddenly became historic. And and trying to break that down, um, you know, you know, it, it's not going to be biography. You know, it's not going to be uh, you know, it's not going to be journalism. Go, they can. You know, you know, those journalism course can 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 also uh, you know you know examine right, but there's something about the way a poem examines the moment, I, I think, and also the the idea of of of, of being in a, in a uh, just uh, some some place where where everybody feels that they're that that, that they're you know that, that that they're sharing it, right? Mm-hmm. How one poem can can be shared by so many people. Right? I, I think it's time we shared some well, poetry. Can I just say something? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was, you made me think of this when you asked the question. And as a, a reader of poetry, I think that what happens is when you read poetry, whatever the experience, and you suddenly go, ah, oh, yes, that's how I've yes. been feeling. That's how right. I've been feeling. So the poets put the words to our feelings and that's I think what people get out of it I, I, I agree with you I also would add and I think this is also part of what you were getting at Alan um, but what I was saying about getting it down um, I, I think it's very important to you know to have that to have that down you know then the minutiae of it right is important too you know, it will be important not only for the people who are living through it, it's going to be important for the people who come back to this later and, and ask the question, what were they doing? What, what were they thinking? What were they feeling about this? What was their reaction to this? Right. And, you know, and, and the poems are going to, poems will hold that information, I believe. Yeah. So, yeah. It's an historical let, let's, let, let's read some poetry. Um, Could I just make a parenthetical? I'm sorry. Go right ahead. I'll shut up. I just want to make a parenthetical. Parenthetical. That is, you know, I think the people who were, and we don't talk about this in terms of the 9-11 experience, but it is my really determined view that people who lived in Manhattan at that time experienced something that is, that the rest of the country couldn't experience because we were effectively isolated. If you lived in Manhattan, you couldn't leave. You were outside Manhattan, you couldn't get in. And that created um, a more exaggerated and extreme reaction to what we were already experiencing. And I I just want to make that point. I think it's, it's relevant to the intensity of people who were living in, in New York City at that time, and the way they reacted, people who live, you know, in New Jersey, Connecticut, or upstate New York, which is, um, which was really, uh, I, I, and I say that because I did a lot of walking. I couldn't go to my office, but I could actually walk down to, uh, 
to downtown New York, um, even though I lived in you know Upper East Side. But and I did. But you could just sense. I mean, people were for the better part of a week or more. People were continued to be stunned. There wasn't talking. There, you know, it was anyway. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. No, Oh, all, all, all great, important ideas, but this is poetry. What is it good for? <laughs> so we need to get to it. I thought we'd start with Cornelius's uh, Grief Bird, okay. which you wrote soon after uh, the, the event 20 years ago. And then we move on to uh, Fear of Flying by, by Chester Johnson. And what's, let's, let's start there, okay? okay. So, um, Cornelius, you're on, Grief Bird. Okay, well, just again, you, uh, you've gotten the, uh, the background poem. Well, uh, why I wrote the poem, so I'll, I'll just read the poem. Grief Bird. After those buildings fell, and New York City stank from bad intent, and the wind twirled with human pigment, and the sky darkened in one spot and howled. There we walked, newborn, holding flashlights and shovels, Dusty with shock, the streets painted mad, ears still smarting from the evil crumble. Now, the combing is shifting. Now, the hauling, the uncovering, the astonished song. Oh God! We um, Becky and I were just at the Holocaust, at the Holocaust Museum, at the 9/11 Museum, and there's a sign there that was up when the buildings came down. And Becky pointed it, and she says, "Look, Alan, there's there's blood on it. There's blood on the sign. Um, and that's the immediate. That's the immediate thing that this poem kind of brought brought to me. Thank you." Um, I can't say it's beautiful. It's 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 awful. It's yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Chester, um, can you can you read for us "Fear of Flying"? Certainly. Before I do, I'd like to just make one point. It's it's interesting that both Cornelius and I deal with two motifs here, and that is the air. And the first image I have, physical image here, is related to a bird, this grief bird, and my fear of flying. Fear of flying. We're downtown on September the 11th, minding our business, tending fate. There's one moment early in advance of the rest, when birds don't sing being in flight, when they wind alongside many a parched cornice. No, they never sing without a grip, and we want to be with God. Around the corner, across from St. Paul's Chapel, people take on air, some leap, while others most degrade into vapor in one giant cough, dropping headlong through flames or debris, never landing, 
God save them and us. Wait. We had air raid effect to lighten the torque. Balloons, yes, balloons and footballs, kites, all fly so high a loose languor, as if ordained aloft in undiminishable space retiring into well-stretched and elevated hands. God meant for rare things to happen, but not for a man with a butcher knife to cut an airborne tether. A hell's unchoked wretch, a gas-blackened plume heatedly swells a swatch of cellophane heavenward, higher still. How does it happen some things rise air-tucked without ties, staves, or other fast catch-me's? Atop an attenuating breath, the swath should land, but when? Wisdom comes once we've taken place. So there. Flying is good for business, we're told, but is it good for us? Um, we have a good friend, uh, it just occurs to me, um, who was a uh, high schooler in Stuyvesant High School at the time that the buildings came down, and he's, he was watching from a bit of distance further away than, than you were, Chester, and he um, doesn't talk about it very much. He was a high school student at the time, right? about seeing bodies falling. <sighs> seeing bodies falling from. <sighs> he was running away from the school and uh, just, and he, the, the school said go. There was no order. They just said leave. And he just, he and his friend just ran towards uh, the Brooklyn Bridge. I'm sorry, I, we, we were just at the museum and it's like it's... No, no. Oh, yeah, no, no. Yeah, but yeah. these young no. children yeah. saw that. Is, yeah. Was there something of that sort that inspired this poem? I think what ex inspired it was when the plume came in the direction, our direction, we saw a lot of... Here this major disaster had happened. And... I kept seeing these cellophane wrappers and, 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 and also pieces of clothing just flying through the air that had obviously come from one of the two towers. And the, the way in which the air played with these, you know, the, the cellophane played with light clothing and it was it was like you know a, a form of dancing that was going on in the context of this terrible event in which it hadn't ended the plume had just you know the plume had come in our direction the plume had, was still attack the city was still under attack but it was under attack in a different way and yet it was sort of it was playful in a way, the way in which the the wind handled this, it was a, you know, it was such a juxtaposition of what was going on relative to 
what I was noticing. One of the lines in that poem that hits me the hardest is when you're talking about the birds on the cornices, they never sing without a grip. Right. And that is, I don't, not quite sure why that's so powerful, but it, it really hits me, that line. And it reminds me also of an early poem of, of Cornelius's called The Black Crows. I think it's called The Black Crows. Oh, oh uh, I know what you mean, yes. Uh, I can't think of the title right now, but I know the one you're talking about. It's, it's from where, Victims of the Latest Dance Craze. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And um, where they're on the, on the roof, on a cornice, trying to hang on in the wind. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but they, you know, they get so distracted. They're, unless they're they're gripping, they're not going to be singing. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so can can we make a um, um can I make a suggestion um that the, the the singing happens when you take place and that's where wisdom happens? Yeah, that's where the that little couplet comes in at the end. That um, And that's something that happens not immediately. No. no. Taking place takes a while. No, it's true. And and that, that played into that little couplet before I, I ended up with that, the issue of, you know, flying generally, you know, it's good for business, but is it good for us? You know, mm. in the sense of what it may mean to... Well, and the World Trade Center was all about business. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. So most of our college students today didn't directly experience the event, and for them, it's like can be like World War II. You know, it happened a long time ago. History. Uh, I have students that are um, nine years, ten years old. They have no idea what it was about. Can poetry make this event significant for them? I don't think that there's a way in which one can really communicate, even through poetry, but to the extent that older, you know, that poetry written in an earlier time can resonate. It resonates because of the, ex, you know, the sort of exper experiential similarities that one would have, whether it's fear, joy, love. And so I think definitely there's a way in which you can bring someone into an environment that they would not otherwise have through the use of poetry. Probably be less than, but it maybe brings you closer to the, to the truth. I think certainly reading Walt Whitman's poems about the Civil War would oh, yeah. bring you oh, closer God. to the truth yeah. right. of that. Yeah. But, but, it's, but it's also the, yeah, I agree. I, I agree. You know, it, it, you can never uh, replicate it, right? Uh, you know, uh, moment for a moment, but but the essence of it, the residue of it, a poem can actually catch. I think. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about Whitman. You know, um, th that moment that changed his life basically, um, it definitely changed his poetry for a moment, um, where he's basically being tactile. He's actually holding, you know, and touching uh, wounded and dying soldiers. You know, um, and that that. Um, that 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 experience, that imprint, you know, imprints us when we read his poems. I think, right? And so and so so basically, you know, you if you're, if you're writing about nine eleven, if you haven't experienced nine eleven, you'll probably be able to find a poem that imprints it. Like like you were saying about the um, 
1913 poem, right? I mean, basically, the, you know, the, it has nothing to do with 9-11. But when you read it, it resonates, right? Right. right? You know, and you can see, oh, yeah, it's kind of like, it is kind of like that. What was it like? Yeah, it's kind of like that. Um, though, the, though the events are not exactly the same. The um, uh, emotional residency is pretty close. So, I, so, so I, I do think that some poems can, can actually manage to do that. It can't, you know, it, you know, it's, it's not. I don't think it's the duty of a poem to try to do all, be all things for all people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but if the reader uh, who is not attached to the event uh, finds the right poem, finds the right poet, you know, you, you can get pretty damn close. Right. But, and I don't know if I'm reading this correctly, in communion. Uh, Cornelius, you write about how it's really hard and maybe impossible to get meaning out of an act that is so horrendous. And I wonder um, if you could read communion for us, sure. maybe talk a little bit about it. And Sure. Well, that was the debate I was talking about earlier, about, about whether I should be writing at all. And the, the thing that brought me back to that was uh, doing a reading at KG, uh, um, KGB. Um, with, um, it was uh, Seku Santiata. I, I was invited to do a reading with him. I had been turning down poetry readings, just, just avoiding them, you know. Um, but Seku, one of, my, one of my favorite human beings and poets. So I went to do this. And as I was listening to Seku read, I suddenly became more aware of the fact about why we need poetry, why we're so hungry for poetry. Um, and again, I thought it was, it was like communion. So. Uh, the poem. After the fall of the towers, it's hard to leave our apartments, pull our eyes from the television, stuck on instant replay, so many angles, all these lenses, all this work and effort just to be told they're gone. Again, then again. How to deal with this invitation now seemingly from another planet, to come and read poetry in a downtown bar. For the first time in my life, poetry feels a bit foolish. The thought of a grown man reading aloud, a half mile from a mass graveyard, the wreck of things too numerous to list, a crack so loud its echo still rattles in our astonished brain pans even after all these weeks. And I hear my parents' early doubts. What sort of work is this? The words that say, I love jazz. My singing about mice. The things I overhear, then slot into stanzas. After saying no to one or two of these, maybe it's the memory of my dead dad. Getting up, rolling out, can't recall a sick day on the job, that plops me in the cab, his soft, wordy boy. Maybe I'm only doing what the sunburnt grass on our lawn upstate does, but doesn't die off, soon curls slowly towards the light and air, tender, relentless. Maybe I need what the small crowd that gathers here needs, the boom Sekou Santiata's voice though the sirens remind us and the streets are spare and ghostlit and we still don't know how to put it.
That's the thing. That's the thing. That's the thing that we all understand. We don't really understand. We can't. We can't. We don't know how to put it. Maybe it's that, that effort to put it, even though we don't understand and we can't put it. We do it anyway. We'll try. <laughs> <laughs> I have the volume here uh, that um, communion appeared in. The oh. hard, hard-headed weather. Weather, yeah. There are a number of changes in what you read from this poem, and I was wondering whether you read a pre-hard-headed weather, or whether the the change the poem that you read is subsequent to this. Oh well, easy answer. I, I was yeah, I'm, I'm, I was reading from an early draft because I wanted to have it on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, nothing more nothing more complicated than that. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 but I wanted to make sure whether it was a, yeah, yeah, no, whether I had pronounced my my published version right. <laughs> I mean, that's a good question. No, no, it's just simply you know, it must really be more convenient. Oh, let's leave right. it on the screen. That's it. it you know, that's what makes this poetry what is it good for? It's such a great. Uh, uh, opportunity for poets to talk to each other, doing a little process talk. Where you there. never know, really, you never know whether it was yeah. a pre-publication or post-publication. I always like to know because what the direction is for the changes that are that occur. Well, you know, well, you know, you reminded me of two things. You reminded me of Whitman, you know, um, uh, who kept kept rewriting, you know, song of myself, right? You ran until his deathbed, and also Galway Canal, who. Uh, who, who uh, did an echo, uh, those echo pocketbook editions of, of poets. Um, she, he actually did what I, I would consider the NYU version of, of the MFA version of, 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 of a Song of Myself. We took all the different versions of it and edited it all together. And we thought was the best edits, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so, so he did that. And he also yeah. had, this, had this wonderful essay that he wrote when he, when he republished his, his um, selected poems, or maybe collected and selected, um, where basically in the essay, he basically says how he, he had changed, uh, you know, most of those, a lot of those poems, right? Had, had rewritten a lot of those poems. And in the essay, he simply, you know, just explained to the reader, like, well, number one, if you don't like this new change, you know, the old poems are still in print, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right, right. But, but these, are the, these are the versions I stand by now. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, it was so. So he's always giving himself the option to to uh, you know to come back right, <laughs> and, right. and nibble at it again. <laughs> well, it's, it comes down to the fact that a poem is never complete; it's only abandoned. Exactly. <laughs> That's and and you, you mentioned Galway Kennell, who wrote one of the uh, pivotal, uh, seminal poems about uh, 9/11, called "When yes. the Towers Fell," for the New Yorker, which is a very long poem, and re- totally recommend it. To, to readers of poetry of this sort. We're talking here about um, one of the things about gaining meaning out of something that seems pretty meaningless. As we were organizing this uh, Poetry What Is It Good For podcast, uh, you kind of took, you, you, you took the reins, you both kind of ran with it, and you came up with all these selections of poems. One poem that, that uh, didn't make the cut was Auden's September 1st, 1939, 39, right, 39, right, exactly. And and Chester, you said that you wanted to read Lucille Clifton's Tuesday 9-11-01 instead of that. Why why replace one? I see them very similar. One's very <laughs> one's long, one's short. But there is oh, there's a message here that I could take away from that does give me meaning. And and you're right. I mean, in terms of the the basic themes, 
um, both September the 1st, 1939, and Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001, by Lucille Clifton, they eventually arrive at the same place. I just felt that it was um, more concise to read Clifton's poem. It took a while for Auden to get there. There were some significantly eloquent lines in in the Auden poem. Um, everyone remembers, do you remember George's Bush, George Bush's A Thousand Points of Light? Remember that? Remember that phrase? She, she sure. stole that from him. Absolutely. <laughs> it was an outright raid. And got from, from, uh, and it appears on the, if you're in Washington, somebody, you've, there are these steps right across from the Treasury Department that have lines from various poems and, and public figures, and they give that line to Bush as opposed to Auden where it really belongs. But anyway, there, there are other examples in that poem, um, and it's just nice to read. But the, I, I love Clifton's poem, which goes to the, gets to the same place. Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001. Thunder and lightning. And our world is another place. No day will ever be the same. No blood untouched. They know this storm in other wares, Israel, Ireland, Palestine. But God has blessed America, we sing. And God has blessed America to learn that none is exempt. The world is one. All fear is one. All life, all death, all one. And if, and if I could... Um... Thank you. That's a beautiful choice. If I could, from September 1, 1939, by W.H. Auden, he writes in the second stanza at the end of it, those to whom evil is done do evil in return. And at the end, um, he eventually gets to the theme that Clifton gets to right away, as you say, is that um, we must love one another or die. Yes. Um, and But Clifton does it quick. Quickly and, right. and powerfully, right. right, yeah. The the first line that you read, Auden uh, disavowed it, uh, that those two lines later on. Um, he refused, there were many anthologists who wanted to put the, the poem into, you know, his part of an anthology, and he refused to do it. The only thing that... Um, he allowed Oscar Williams to put in, but he changed it because he thought he thought that line was a lie. So, oh. Hmm. Oh. That's so interesting. Anyway. Yes. I mean, that to me, that's the line that just kind of like burst off the page, especially in our times. Why don't you read it again? I'll tell you what he said. I, I, I just read, it's just one line. So just... Yeah. Those to whom evil is done do evil in return. Right. And he doesn't, he, what he did in that poem is he built up the background of, of Hitler 
um, where he was born and what his early childhood. And he basically, he left the implication that he was ex not excusing, but effectively explaining why Hitler was the way he was. It was a period when Auden was really much into, it was around the same time he wrote a, uh, a poem uh, mem in memory of, of Freud, Sigmund Freud. So he was really into that period. And uh, then he realized later that he had, he had overanalyzed the thing and he never wanted it to appear and he just didn't want it to be associated with it. I'm, mm -hmm. but anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have two essays here that you both read, but I, I think we're, we're running long. And so, um, surprise, yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. We should have warned you, you know, beforehand. What happens when we, when we get together? I'm sorry, <laughs> no, no, I, I, we're not sorry at all. But, but, um, iTunes only allows us to have a certain length podcast, so we have to kind of keep it within, you know, somewhat like around an hour. But we do need to get to the two poems that you're going to read that the other wrote. And I think we need to start with Chester's poem, which we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, uh, St. Paul Chapel poem, that Cornelius is going to read. And then Chester is going to read uh, the poem by um, Cornelius Edie, Don't Bum Out the Musicians. And we got the backstory at the beginning of our program. <laughs> Right. But if you want to say anything else, go right ahead. Right, the teaser that we set up so cleverly set up. Beautiful. Well done. Exactly. I told you we wouldn't need to do anything. Beautifully formed, like a wave. Right, exactly. We knew we just go again. We know what we're doing. We're pros. What can I tell you? Okay, so St. Paul's Chapel. It stood. Not a window broken, not a stone dislodged. It stood when nothing else did. It stood when terrorists brought September down. It stood among myths. It stood among ruins. To stand was its purpose. Long lines prove that. It stands. And around it now, a shrine of letters, poems, acrostics, litter of the heart. It is the standing people want to grieve, serve, and tend, celebrate the lasting stone of the St. Paul's Chapel. And deep into its thick breath, the largest banner fittingly from Oklahoma climbs heavenward with hands as stars, hands as stripes, hands as a flag. And a rescuer reaches for a stuffed toy to collect a touch. And George Washington's pew doesn't go unused. Charity fills a hole or two. It stood in place of other sorts. It stood when nothing 
else could. The great had fallen as the brute hardware came down. It stood. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. Um, there, there's a, a Chester, could you tell us about your poem? I mean, it is now handed out at St. Paul Chapel to all the visitors. It is maybe one of the most well-read poems, I guess, of our time because, because of that. Um, can you say any more about the poem? Yes, it was, um, it was written strictly from the perspective of it being the relief center for the recovery workers. And um, if you walked into St. Paul's Chapel at that time, there wasn't a square inch that wasn't filled with notes or other cards written from uh, people from all over the country. It was the relief center. I, I know Chris makes reference to an early where there had been pictures and signs of, do you know, have you seen this person or whatever? St. Paul's Chapel actually started out as what I would say is the city's kiosk, because that's what on all the, all the fence around St. Paul's Chapel, that's what you saw. And then immediately it became the relief center for the recovery workers, and it was you know, 24-7. And I meant to try to capture that. For example, you know, George Washington's pew doesn't go unused. Well, there were three podiatrists in there working on the feet of the recovery workers. If they would stand on the pile for longer than 30 minutes, the boots would start to melt. And that you can imagine the impact that would have on feet. We had 14,000 volunteers come in over nine months to serve and um, serve there. And part of them, I mean, some of them would go out and collect in the back of a truck boots and bring them into um, the St. Paul's Chapel because boots were so such a rare and, and important commodity to have. But it was meant, this was strictly meant to be sort of an interior poem, and what it did, it, it basically became sort of a, not necessarily just a memento card, St. Paul's Chapel, but a memento card for the workers on the, on the pile and the volunteers. One, one quick story, um, one year, Bloomberg chose to have first responders and volunteers uh, read the names of family members who had died as opposed to family members doing that. And, I, and I, so I read the case. Um, and as I was waiting in line, I kept hearing either they would be police or fire, and they would get up and say, thank God for St. Paul's Chapel, because it was, you know, these people worked in eight-hour shifts, and, and then they would be off for a couple of hours and go back. And and St. Paul's Chapel was there with food and hand warmers and clothing and medicine and even music. And so it was, a, it, it was an interior poem in that, in that respect. It's really been distributed a lot. There's, it's, um, at last count, it was one and a half million cards that have been passed out. And, um, and Cornelius, we're going to end with you um, reading your uh, response to 
the St. Paul Chapel poem. I thought no, that um, Chester's Ch 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 Chester's I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I've off stumbled here. Yeah. As we said earlier, this is this is also a St. Paul derivative poem. Right. Right. So don't bum out the musicians by Cornelius Eady. Ah, behold how hot tears roll down pale cheeks. Johann Sebastian Bach, Ascension Oratorio Cantata number 11. At St. Paul's Church, the musicians have heard it all. For years, they have paused between Bach movements to hear the strange read of a human voice recite grief. Watch out, the poetry director gently warns me. This church across the street from where the towers fell is busy with spring. What shall I wring from my throat? Won't the tenor later sing? Ah, just stay, my dearest life. What has been whispered, wailed before my arrival? Gone, I figure, worse, worse than gone. When the tower fell, just before the tower fell, the lives trapped between the flames and the window your farewell and your early departure. And um, with that, we want to thank you, J. Chester Johnson, Cornelius Eady, for joining us here on Poetry, What Is It Good For?, Again and again, and this time also, we've proven that poetry is gold. No, it's better than gold. <laughs> better than gold. It's life. Yeah. And um, uh, Chris, is there anything you'd like to add before we finish up? I, no, I'm full. <laughs> yeah. I'm completely full of gorgeous words right now. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much both of you guys it's just and we of course we met chester um, 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 a while ago talking about his book damaged heritage yeah. and now i feel so wonderfully honored and buoyed having me meeting you cornelius um <laughs> thank you alan yes. I, I i i think this is probably i didn't really realize this is being you know this is, of course of course is being taped you know uh uh you know in you know in uh in june um but uh joe no June still, I'm not July yet. Um, and, um, and, I, and it's a beautiful uh, summer day and I 
thought this is, this is the best way of spending it. <laughs> you know, yeah. what's, a, what's a better way of spending an afternoon? A beautiful sunny, uh, you know, summer afternoon than, than talking poetry with some good people, right? Well, yeah, that, right. that's what poetry is for. <laughs> that's what poetry is good for. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.